You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Revelation. Here's Nate. Well, what a wonderful journey it's been through the book of Revelation and perhaps for you, the entire Bible. And what a joy it is to study God's Word and what an opportunity, especially studying here the book of Revelation. I mean, to see Jesus Christ revealed in this kind of way, I think is such an incredible privilege. I just imagine being the Apostle John there, knowing Jesus, being very close with Jesus, but then receiving this end-of-life vision of the exalted, glorified Christ, seeing him in heaven as the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the earth, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, seeing him with with burning, fiery eyes and a sword protruding from his mouth and bronze feet and white garments and hair, white like wool, as white as snow, and a voice with the sound of many mighty rushing waters. And just the experience of John in, in seeing Jesus revealed in this kind of way. And of course, the book of Revelation reveals for us how it's all going to end. How the plan of God to redeem this fallen and broken world all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 to see how it all unfolds and, and, and closes out uh, here at the end of the book. And of course, in Revelation chapter 21, we saw the beginnings of the description of the new heaven and the new earth. And we continue that description here in Revelation chapter 22. What a privilege it has been to discover these things and to study these things along with you in the book of Revelation. Now, just one last reminder, the book of Revelation, its own beautiful, wonderful, divine outline. Chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus tells John to write the things that he had seen. That's chapter 1. The things which were at the time of John, that's chapter 2 and 3, and the things which will take place after these things, that's chapter 4 all the way through the end of the book, chapter 22. We've gone through the Great Tribulation, a seven-year period of time. We've discovered the final judgment. We've looked at the millennial thousand-year reign of Christ. We've seen the Great White Throne Judgment. And now we've seen the New Jerusalem coming down from heaven in chapter 21. And now we've got uh, a greater detail concerning heaven as John attempts to describe the glory of heaven. He says in verse 1, he says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. So the first thing he sees is he sees the, the river of the water of life pure and bright like crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Now, all throughout Scripture, rivers are seen as sources of wonderful blessing, whether it's the Nile River or the Jordan River or the four-headed river in Eden back in Genesis chapter 2. Rivers are seen as a source of life and a source of blessing. And here in heaven, there is a river. It says in Psalm 46, verse 4, it says, There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God. 
the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. I just love that line. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God. This life-giving river of the water of life is just flowing in heaven and making the people of God glad for all of eternity. And this river is made of the water of life. Now, of course, God referred to himself in Jeremiah 2 as the fountain of living waters. And you see that this river is flowing from the throne. The source of this river is the throne of God. He himself is the source, the fountain of living water, so to speak. Jesus, of course, referred to the Holy Spirit inside of us as flowing like rivers of living water. And Jesus claimed that those who drink of this water will never thirst. He says the water that, that, that I give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, uh, the triune Godhead, he is the source of this water of life, this living water, and a source of absolute joy. And I, I would just say it like this. In heaven, we will be satisfied as we drink and partake of God. You know, on earth, we're satisfied as well as we partake and drink of God, but we will experience the fullness of God in heaven and we will be drinking of him and glad forevermore. And then he sees, says also, he says that he sees also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding each uh, month its fruit. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so he sees this tree also uh, there in heaven. It's called the tree of life. Now, of course, this snaps us back to the book of Genesis when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and were banished from the Garden of Eden. God placed angels uh, at the entrance to the Garden of Eden so as to keep man from going back to the Garden lest he, God said, eat of the tree of life. He had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but he had yet to eat of the tree of life. And one of the worst things that could have happened is for man to fall and then eat of the tree of life and be perpetually forever in a state of death and decay and fallenness. Now the tree of life was protected and then, as we see here, apparently moved into heaven. So that man can eat of it and live forever and ever and ever. And so uh, man may have lost paradise, but God gives it back again. Now, you might notice there, it says that this tree, you eat of its fruit and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. The healing of the, the nations. I, I don't know that I'm entirely certain what this refers to specifically but this sounds wonderful the therapy the the the, the life giving uh relationship between the nations and this tree of life we saw in chapter 21 of course that there are kings of the earth 
that will go in and out of heaven. Uh, the nations are going to live by the light that comes from God, from the new Jerusalem. And so uh, what I believe is happening here is that the, the tree of life is just going to be a blessing to the nations that exist at that time in the new heaven and in the new earth. And, and, and I alluded to this before, but I am so looking forward to this reality that there will be cultures and all of that in the new heaven and in the new uh, earth. I mean, you know, you, you think about it here in this life. It's such a luxury for someone, for instance, to be able to, at some point in their life, spend a whole bunch of money touring, you know, different nations and cultures. And to go on those, these long vacations and to experience different foods and ethnicities and all, and all of that. And different sights and sounds and music and sports and all of that. But I'm so looking forward to, for all of eternity, exploring this in the different cultures and nations that exist throughout eternity. And I think that, you know, here we read of the healing of the nations and kings and leadership and all of that. And I think there's going to be this wonderful thing where we're experiencing that. I mean, you think about the heights that music is able to go as a multi-billion dollar industry in today's world. And, you, and then think about the reality that, that all of that can barely scratch the surface of what we might experience musically in eternity. You know, for me, that just sounds wonderful. To be able to experience, you know, just life and culture and all of that in the light of God, of course. You know, we'll, we'll be fascinated with Him. But, but every single thing that we do Every taste in our mouths, every sound that we hear, every song that we hear, every, every event that we attend, it will all be done in such a way where there's just this gladness about God in the midst of all of it. Every single thing we do in eternity will be worship. And uh, so, man, I, uh, I'm so encouraged by this. I just can't wait to be eating of the tree of life and receiving the healing. Uh, from the leaves of the tree of life. And, and then, of course, we notice there that it says that this will happen every month. It yields its fruit each month, which is curious concerning, you know, is there time in heaven? Well, you know, here we see the, the, the yielding its fruit each month. We'll figure out if that's figurative or symbolic when we get there. No longer, verse 3, will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. There will be nothing accursed. That means that the curse way back from Genesis 3 has been removed. Uh, the sorrow and the pain and childbirth, the friction between the sexes, the necessity of hard and often futile work for man's sustenance, death, will all be done away with. And uh, we will worship and serve God. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. We will be fully identified with God. And we will see his face. Uh, no longer just the outline of the presence of God or the emanation of his glory. We will physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually be able to see God. And I think of the greatest mountaintop experiences of my life. 
You know, I, I use that term to describe, you know, those, those moments where perhaps in worship or at a conference or a camp or something like that, I felt the presence of God in a stronger sense than at other more regular seasons of life. And, and all I could say is in those moments, no matter how glorious and wonderful it might be in those moments, those moments have absolutely nothing on the glory of, of you know, everyday life in eternity. Just seeing God, experiencing God. You know, just I just think about that. Walking out of a worship service and saying, man, I really, I felt the presence of God tonight. <laughs> and, and that experience will be nothing in comparison to actually seeing the face of God. And having his name written on our foreheads. And night, verse 5, will be no more. Uh, they will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. As much as I love sleep, I don't know that we're going to need it in eternity. There will be no night. There will be no darkness. And the sin that's done in the darkness, it will be done. It will be eradicated, eliminated. The night will be no more. And... And God himself will be our light there in heaven and we will reign forever and ever. You know what that indicates? That indicates that there is no possibility that uh, this whole thing in heaven is going to somehow get canceled. And somehow, you know, we're going to have a rebellion part two. No, not at all. Uh, we will reign with him forever and ever. And he said to me, verse six, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to sh show his servants what must soon take place. So God speaks and uh, he says, listen, this is, this is going to happen uh, soon. Actually, pardon me, it's the angel speaking in verse 6. And he says, listen, you know, announces to John, he says, listen, these events are, are going to take place soon. And so now we have some parting words from various individuals. And first the angel says, listen, this is going to happen quickly. Uh, it, it must soon take place. Now, I believe when he says this, that he's speaking about something that is going to happen suddenly. It's when, when it does occur, it will happen quickly. Uh, on the other hand, I know that in the sight of God, uh, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. I mean, God's accounting of time is far different from ours. And so, you know, I, I think we're, we're right there on the edge of this. When it occurs, it will take place quickly. He says, and behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And so, We've got Jesus speaking now. I'm coming soon. And he says, you know, blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy. Those who remember, those who repent, those who hold fast, those who have humility. The words of Revelation 2 and 3, you know, to overcome, to be obedient to the Lord, to keep yourself from sexual immorality and to walk steadfastly with him, to be all about it. How blessed are those who keep the words of this book. And he says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm your fellow servant 
with you and your brothers and the, the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And so once again, this angel refuses worship. It's like Peter said back in Acts chapter 10, when he went to the household of Cornelius and people fell down to worship and he said, get up. I myself am also a man. This angel says, hey, get up. Uh, I myself am a servant of God with you and your brothers and the prophets. We're in this together. There's only one that deserves worship and that is God himself. And he said to me, verse 10, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Let the evil doer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Now we have this interesting and slightly mysterious statement from the angel telling John as a command not to seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. And the reason is, for the time is near. So don't seal it up, he tells uh, John. Now this is interesting because back in the book of Daniel, uh, verse uh, Daniel chapter 8 and in Daniel chapter 12, Daniel is told to seal up his prophecies. In other words, these were things that would be understood later. But this book from beginning to end has carried itself as an unveiled book. The first line is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Jesus. And so the angel communicates to John, hey, listen, don't, don't veil this. Don't seal this. This is something that people need to know about. And as I've said before, I really truly believe that the literal chronological interpretation of the book of Revelation is the interpretation that presents this book in an unveiled, simple, discoverable kind of light. Uh, you know, other views that are more symbolic and historical and all of that, you know, the interpretation varies from teacher to teacher, commentator to commentator. And it almost in the end, seems like it is a sealed book. But to me, this chronological, literal, when you can, approach to the book of Revelation seems to present it in a very unveiled fashion. And so that's why I've taught it to you from this standpoint. And so he says, listen, you know, uh, don't seal it. And, and hey, let those that are evil do evil. Let the filthy do filthy things. Let the righteous do right and let the holy be holy. Uh, in other words, at this point in the story, uh, there's no point in changing. It's too late. What you are, you are at this point. Uh, of course, at this stage, we would say, hey, come to Christ, repent of your sin, give your life to him. Now in verse 12, he goes on and he says, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You know, of course, there are a couple of ways to look at the reality that Jesus is coming soon, coming quickly. Uh, Matthew tells us that we should be ready for his return. But there are a couple of different ways to look at this promise that he is going to repay everyone for what he has done. You know, when it comes to someone who doesn't know Christ, we would say, you need to know Christ. 
you do not want to be judged according to your works. But I think here on this side of eternity, this is from the heavenly perspective and realm. I think there's a bit of Jesus saying, hey, listen, when I come, there are going to be rewards that are given. I'm going to clothe you with crowns and 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 rewards in this heavenly uh, place. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you know, don't let your works be the kind of work or lifestyle that is like wood and hay and stubble burned up in the fire, never to be seen again. But let your works be like gold and silver and precious stones, things that will last for all of eternity. And, and, and I think that that is clear in what Jesus is saying. There is, a, there is an accounting that we'll give for these lives that we live here on earth. You want to live a life that God can reward. A life that is focused on the things of eternity. And I encourage Christians everywhere to have an, a heavenly, eternal perspective. He says in verse 14, he says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may, they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So, you know, in, outside the kingdom are all of these things that have been uh, judged. But blessed are those who have washed their garments. Blessed are those who have been made pure by the blood of Jesus. And, uh, you know, they will be able to enter uh, this new and wonderful kingdom. And he says in verse 16, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now, this, of course, is a reminder as he calls himself the root and the descendant of David. This is a reminder of that you know, precious messianic title in Isaiah chapter 11, speaking of that, that root, that branch of Jesse. And, uh, you know, what this shows us is that Jesus is the creator of King David. He's the root of David, but also he says the descendant of David. Only Jesus could fulfill this. He created David and also descended from David. <laughs> And of course, uh, you know, Jesus was in the line of David and the messianic promise that uh, God, that David would always have an ancestor to sit upon the throne and he will in Christ. The spirit and the bride, verse 17, we've heard the angel, we've heard Jesus, but now the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who desires take the water of life again, as he said in uh, chapter twenty-one, without price. And so the, the the pleading here from the spirit and from the bride or the church to Jesus is come. And uh, you know, in one sense, this is you know could be seen as the spirit and the bride saying to Jesus, "Come, return, Lord." Uh, but it actually appears a little bit that, that the Spirit and the Bride are actually urging the world to come to Jesus. And, you know, we're to desire both. Amen? We're to desire the coming of Christ. In, in verse 20, we're going to see that quite clearly. Come, Lord Jesus. 
Even so, come Lord Jesus. We're to long for the coming of Christ. Pray for the coming of Christ. Be passionate for the coming of Christ. But on the other hand, we are to desire that the world itself would come to know Jesus. You know, in our fellowship, the one that I'm pastoring uh, here in Monterey, California, uh, there is a deep desire for, you know, within our church, we, we want to see people come to Christ. And of course, we want to see this as we give invitations and as the people in our fellowship actually share the gospel with people that they know and people that they love. But in our fellowship, we're also desiring this in a great way in the planting of churches. We want to see men and women raised up with a fire in their bones to go out into all the world and to make disciples. The early church, when they heard that commission from Jesus, when they went out into all of the world, they established bodies of believers, churches. And so when we hear this statement from the Spirit and the Bride saying, Come, oh, that the passion of our hearts to see Jesus, uh, you know, received by more people on this earth, oh, that that passion and desire would grow. You know, at the end of the day, this is what it's really all about introducing people to Christ, having them know him, discover him, and grow in him, and be matured in their faith. He says in verse 18, he says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. Uh, he says, uh, and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So a very stern warning about the book of Revelation and, in my sense, the entire Bible. In other words, don't mess with uh, God's word. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. And this should stand as a stern warning to anyone who would communicate the word of God. Listen, it's not up to us to push our interpretation onto scripture. No, the scripture needs to push itself onto us. We are the ones that need to flex and bend, but not the holy word of God. It drives me crazy when people uh, just sort of, you know, use a, an excuse like, well, you know, that was a cultural kind of thing that we're reading there in the Bible. Or, uh, you know, that was a perspective back then, but it's not really a, a perspective now. And, and seek to bend the scripture for their own devices. Oh, no, no, no. We are not to add or subtract from it. And God gives a very stern warning towards that end. He says in verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And so that's the Aramaic expression known in the ancient church, Maranatha. You know, even so, come, Lord Jesus. But we close this book out, we close the Bible out with a promise that Jesus is coming soon. And this is one of those doctrines or beliefs that is so quickly doubted by people in the church that Jesus will return, but he will. And the last sentence of the Bible, verse 21, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. 
And so the grace of God, the Old Testament ends with a curse. Read it, Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, that I will strike the earth with a curse. But the New Testament ends with the grace of God. And may the grace of God be upon your life as you grow in his grace and as you discover the favor of God upon you. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com. Come, Lord Jesus. And so that's the Aramaic expression known in the ancient church, Maranatha. You know, even so, come, Lord Jesus. But we close this book out, we close the Bible out with a promise that Jesus is coming soon. And this is one of those doctrines or beliefs that is so quickly doubted by people in the church that Jesus will return, but he will. And the last sentence of the Bible, verse 21 the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. And so the grace of God, the Old Testament ends with a curse. Read it. Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, that I will strike the earth with a curse. But the New Testament ends with the grace of God. And may the grace of God be upon your life as you grow in his grace, and as you discover the favor of God upon you. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.